I'm going to read from Matthew 19 today, verses 16 through 26. It's the rich young man. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With the man, this is impossible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Well, good morning. So have you ever been in one of those situations where you went somewhere or you did something, but you didn't really know what you looked like? And um, if you've ever had to watch yourself on video, you know what this feels like. It's excruciating. And um, when you see yourself the way other people see yourself, sometimes you realize that there were things about yourself that you thought were true that aren't true, or things that you thought weren't true that now are true. Or sometimes it's just you look very different than you thought you were going to present yourself to people. I was doing a funeral a couple of years ago, and somehow in getting ready for this funeral, I'd been putting on the mic, and I was wearing a suit. I know it's hard for you guys to imagine that here in Carlton Landing, but I was wearing a suit, and somehow my suit jacket had gotten tucked up behind the microphone on my back. And this church is one of those that has a very high stage, and so to go up to do the opening part of this funeral, I had to climb these stairs with my jacket all the way up my back, showing my best side. And I had no idea until I got back down during the first song and the guy behind me yanked my jacket out from behind me and then pulled it down. And, you know, it was really nice of him to do that, but then for the rest of the whole funeral, I couldn't think of anything but what had just happened. And it's just a reminder that as buttoned up as you think you are, as smooth as you think you are, there's always going to be moments in your life where you don't realize what you look like to other people. And we're back in our series in Matthew, and we're going through these passages in Matthew, and every time you have an encounter with somebody in Matthew, the goal is for us to have an encounter with Jesus as these people have an encounter with Jesus, right? So this is different than a work of history in the sense that this isn't just some attempt to convey to you what happened between these people and Jesus. The book of Matthew is written so that as you read these people encountering Jesus, you would encounter Jesus in this gospel. Because Matthew's gospel is all about discipleship. What does it mean to become like Jesus? What does it mean to walk with him? What does it mean to have a relationship with him? And so as we look at this encounter with the rich young ruler this morning or the rich young man, we are too encountering Jesus. And what Jesus is going to do with the rich young man 
And what we hope he's going to do for us this morning is he's going to hold up a mirror. And he's going to say, this, this is what you really look like. This, this is, you may not see this yourself, but this is what you look like. And it's even a, one step better than that because it's not just this is what you look like to other people or this is what you look like in a real mirror. This is what you look like to God. This is what you look like in your deepest place to God. And so what Jesus is going to do in this story is he's going to hold up three mirrors. He's going to show him three things. He's going to show him his need. He's going to show him his money. And he's going to show him his salvation or his eternal life. So to get situated in this story, Matthew's custom is basically to give you a block of teaching that Jesus has taught to his disciples, and then includes stories that demonstrate that teaching out in Jesus's life. So we jump back in in chapter 18, and in chapter 18, he talks about who is the greatest with his disciples. He talks about the parable of the lost sheep. He talks about what to do if your brother sins against you. And then after that, he's going to have these encounters where he demonstrates those principles in action. In fact, the whole gospel of Matthew is arranged around the fact that in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus gives the longest single block of teaching in the New Testament about, called the Sermon on the Mount, about how to live in the kingdom of God. And then every encounter after that is going to demonstrate what he taught in that message for people to see how to live in the kingdom with Jesus as the king. Now, in the passage before our passage this morning, Jesus is basically done a, uh, a little A-B test for us. He has shown us what it's like to live in the kingdom, and he's done that by taking children and saying, the kingdom of heaven is for those who are like little children who come humbly and totally dependent on their heavenly Father. Then the disciples who were listening to this teaching, who again and again and again don't get the teaching until they see it in action. They, after Jesus says this, they have a group of people who are bringing children to Jesus. This should be pretty easy, right? Hey, children are first in the kingdom. You got to receive the kingdom like a child. And then one chapter later, people are bringing children. The disciples are like, get those kids out of here. Get the, get the kids out of here. They, Jesus doesn't want to be around the kids. And Jesus says to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, right? The, the disciples are like us. They can't just do it theoretically. They've got to see it in real life. They've got to see what this looks like. Well, here's something fascinating that happens. Kids in the ancient world were not the way that we see kids now. Kids in the ancient world were the bottom of the rung socially. They were not cared for the way we care for our kids. They were not the center of the universe the way they are the center of our universe. They were somebody who is disenfranchised, underprivileged, can't do anything for you. And Jesus says, let those kids come to me. Well, then, in the next story, it says, and behold, a man comes to Jesus who says to him, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And we find out in the other gospel accounts, because this is included in Matthew and Mark and Luke, this is a young man who is a really good man who is socially influential and religiously moral. This would be the one that the disciples are like, kids, no. Religious young ruler, yes. This is the guy who should come to Jesus. He is the top of their social and religious hierarchy. If you were to pick a person in the Gospels who is most likely to get along with Jesus, 
in the disciples' eyes, this is your guy. This guy has everything you would want in somebody who's coming to Jesus. So the disciples are probably ecstatic about this. They're like, finally, somebody that can speak Jesus' language. He has a similar pedigree. This is going to be a great encounter with Jesus. And right at the beginning, Jesus begins to hold that mirror up and show the rich young ruler his need. He begins to show him his need. Another way that we could say this is he begins to show him his sin, but, but this is part of the brilliance of the exchange that Jesus has with the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler comes to him, notice what he says. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, presumably the Ten Commandments. But the guy goes, okay, which commandments? You know, he's kind of asking this like you're fishing for a compliment. Like, what commandments are you talking about? Well, he, goes, he, he does six, five, six, seven, and eight of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and what Jesus gives is the summary commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, as we should imagine from the beginning of this encounter, this guy is like, check, 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 check. This is perfect. I've done all of those things. So here's the issue. I wonder if you've seen this in this encounter before. As far as we know in the story, there is no obvious external sin in this guy's life. So most of us are not accustomed to living around this kind of religious person because in our culture, even really religious people understand that there's some area that they don't measure up. But these people were so committed to keep the law of God that as far as we know, you could look at this guy's life and say, given the list of rules that we're familiar with, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, there is actually nothing that we could point to in his life to say that is sin. Now, this, this is really interesting because what Jesus is doing in holding the mirror up to this guy is forcing us in our encounter with Jesus to say, is there something beyond just the external image that we present to people when it comes to right and wrong, when it comes to sin and righteousness. See, Jesus spends the whole first part of the book of Matthew talking about what true righteousness is, right? He says, the, the law says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart at your brother, you are guilty of murder in your heart. See, see Jesus is reframing for all of us what it really means to have a need for a Savior. Here you get the test case where this person has done nothing externally wrong, and Jesus is going to press one layer deeper and say, he is materially wealthy, he is morally wealthy, but he is spiritually impoverished. He is spiritually impoverished. See, there's another way of talking about sin that might get us to the level where we can see his need. And, and, and this is exactly what Jesus does. Have you noticed in the Gospels, Jesus, his responses to people are always kind of off the wall. Like he, he never, when he talks to somebody, he never says the thing that you would think if you were making small talk with somebody, you would say next. Jesus never says that. Instead, this guy comes up and says, what good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes into this, what seems to us, kind of off-the-wall theological question of, why would, you, why would you call anything good except God himself? I mean, this is the most 
kind of disorienting way to start this conversation. And you see this everywhere. And when he, when he meets this woman and she talks about drawing water at the well, Jesus starts talking about the eternal worship of God and the place that that's going to occur. And what you've got to understand with Jesus is Jesus is going straight to the heart, not to the actions. Jesus always with people goes straight to the major issue of the heart. And so what he does here is he says, why would you call anything good except God? Well, as we're going to see, because this young man thinks that he is good. He thinks that he is good. He doesn't think he has any need whatsoever other than more good things that he could do to earn God's approval. So Jesus says, why do you call anything good except God? And he says, if you, if you want to do the things that inherit eternal life, why don't you keep the commandments? To which, to which this person says, I've kept all the commandments. And, and at the end of the exchange, Jesus says, why don't you sell everything you have and come and follow me? And that's really what you need to do. And, and people have, have talked differently about, you know, what, what is it that Jesus is doing in this story? Well, I, I think the best way to talk about it is he's going back to the first commandment and saying, let's start at the very beginning behind what the heart of the Ten Commandments is. You know, the first commandment is the most internal commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have nobody else worthy of your worship, nobody else that you give your heart to, nobody else who sits on the throne of your heart besides God. And if you break any of the other commandments, what ends up happening is you have to break the first commandment first to break any of the other commandments. But here's the issue. You can break the first commandment, and nobody else will ever be able to tell that you're breaking any of the others. It's all internal for this guy. So maybe another word that we use biblically to talk about what's going on here is not, not the word sin, because we think of sin as external. You've done something wrong, you've broken a commandment. Maybe we should use the word idolatry instead. So if, you, so if, you ever, if you've been on a Bible reading plan or you've spent much time in the Old Testament, it is amazing how much the Bible talks about idolatry. In fact, if you were just going to do a survey of the Bible, you would have to conclude that the most significant issue that the Bible is addressing is idolatry. And, and when we say idolatry, that gets us a little closer to what Jesus is talking about here, because idolatry has a worship component with it. Idolatry is worshiping the wrong God, which you can do externally, but you can also do it internally. There's an amazing article uh, that David Pallison wrote called Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. And what he talks about is, he says, if you survey all that the Bible says about idolatry, you come to understand that the fundamental problem of the human heart is not doing the wrong thing, but loving the wrong thing, worshiping the wrong thing, giving yourself to the wrong thing, orienting your life and your time and your energy and your money and your passion and your dreams around the wrong thing. That is idolatry. And so the fundamental problem we have before we come to know Christ is that we are idolaters. That's the root of what sin really is, is we have a worship problem. We have a love problem. And, and the most common idol is not an idol of wood or stone or clay or something like that. The most common idol is us. We are on the throne. We are worshiping ourselves as our own gods rather than Jesus. And so David Pallison concludes 
so much of what we talk about with sin and counseling, he's a, he's a counselor, sin and counseling and spiritual formation, we treat the symptoms and the idol never gets dislodged. The idol stays the same, but the behavior changes. That's not true repentance. What he's pushing on with the rich young ruler when he says, sell everything, come and follow me, is he's saying, if you really want eternal life, you, you will have no other gods before me. That's your problem. The problem is not that you're not well-behaved. It's not that you're not well-respected. It's not that God hasn't even blessed you with material things in your life. The problem is you've thought that all those things are the thing. And there's an idol in your heart that even if I tell you to go do better in this area or that area or that area, even, this is the amazing thing about the story, even if he goes and sells everything he has and gives it to the poor, but he doesn't do the second part of that command, he will remain an idolater. Because the command that Jesus gives at the end of this that is the most important is, come and follow me. It's interesting that there's two kinds of wealth in this story. There's the material wealth, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but, but actually Jesus jumps past the material wealth immediately. And he gets down to the real wealth that is causing this guy problems, which is his religious wealth, his success, his self-sufficiency, his ability to see himself as measuring up to the standard that God has set. That's actually the most dangerous thing for his soul in this whole story. And Jesus says, if you really want eternal life, make a worship exchange. Stop worshiping the wrong thing. Follow me. Worship God instead. So the second thing that Jesus does in this story is he does hold up a mirror to his wealth. So he's, he's covered the need. This guy comes to him essentially doing a self-assessment on his need and finding that there's nothing that he needs. Jesus pushes on that and says, actually, there's this whole cavernous need in your heart that you need to address. But, but at the same time, he, he does deal with the wealth. So there's two ways to, to preach this story. You can pretend like it doesn't talk about money at all, which is what a lot of people do, or you can pretend like money is the only thing that this talks about. Money in the mirror that Jesus holds up to him is a secondary issue in this story. Now, it is, I will say it is kind of odd in this story that this guy's coming to Jesus, he's essentially asking how to be a Christian, and Jesus starts talking about money. If Jesus had gone to seminary, he would know, never on the first time to church, do you bring up money? Never when somebody's about to become a Christian do you touch the pocketbook. You don't reach inside somebody's wallet in the first conversation they're having with you. But Jesus always does this. He always goes straight to the thing. And, and with this guy, here's the problem. The money is guarding the door for what Jesus really wants to talk about. So he's got to deal with the money to get to what he really wants to talk about, which is the idol of the heart that the money represents. The thing about this story is it reminds us that there are different kinds of idols and sins in our life. There, and, and you'll hear people talk about this with surface idols and deep idols, or you'll hear people talk about maybe root idols and fruit idols. However you want to parse this out, there, there is a set of things that are external, they're surface level for us, that we use to serve our deeper idols and idolatry in our hearts. Money is in the first category, right? Money is a surface idol. So 
You can spend your money a million different ways, and if you have a different heart, it could come out on either side of what Jesus is talking about here. It's not about that if you deal with the heart. So, so the thing that he's talking about with this guy that's so interesting is you have a surface idol that everybody can see and a deeper idol that no one can see. Are you willing to deal with the deeper idol? John Piper, who many of you know, famous pastor in Minneapolis, has a sign over his study door. And on it it says, remember the rich young man. Every time he goes out of that study, sees that sign, instead of like play, play like a champion today, his says, remember the rich young man. And the reason I think he did that, the way he explains it, is because anything can be to you what the riches are to this guy if you have the same heart idol. If you have the same thing that you want, self-sufficiency, control, respect, fear of man, whatever it is, if you have the same idol, anything could be what this guy's riches are to him. And the way he explains it is, he's like, it's like the difference between a ticket and the show. If you're going to a show or you're going to a movie or something and you buy the ticket, once you see the show, you get rid of the ticket. You don't, once you're in, you don't need the ticket anymore. Because it was just the vehicle to get you to whatever your thing was. The problem with the rich young ruler and, the, and the, the role that money often plays is it's the show instead of the ticket. Right? That's the problem with this guy is he thinks that he can come to Jesus to essentially get what he wanted. Jesus in this story is the ticket to whatever his deeper need is. Respect, self-sufficiency, control, comfort, whatever that is, Jesus is the ticket. So here's the problem. If you treat Jesus that way, once you get to the show, you don't need Jesus anymore. Jesus is just a vehicle for you to get whatever it was you ultimately wanted in your heart. But here's the thing too. If you flip that around and Jesus is the show, God can redeem any ticket. He can redeem any ticket. The problem in this story is not the money. It's like the very famous, probably the most famous verse of the Bible about money is always misquoted. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right? And you hear people quote this all the time, like kind of half correct, like the love of, the money, love of money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And then, and then beyond that, people will just say love of money is evil or just money is evil. And it's like none of those things are what the Bible says. The Bible says if you love it, if you worship it, if you have a deep idol in your heart, money will never be something God can use in your life for anything but feeding that idol. But if you love God, money can be a wonderful tool for his kingdom. If you love God, actually anything, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, anything that God has created, he can use for his purpose. So the goal in this story if you understand that ticket and show, the goal in the story is not divestment, but discipleship. What he really wants this person to do is get rid of what he thinks is the goal, get the right goal, and then begin following Jesus and making decisions based on that. So you have this situation where the release from material preoccupation, one of the commentators says, is not the secret of eternal life. It's easy to preach this poverty gospel where if this guy would just get rid of his stuff, he'd be holier. No. He'd be the same idolater he was before, but he wouldn't be as well off. <laughs> the, the release from material preoccupation 
is not in itself the secret of eternal life. It is the introduction to a new way of life as a disciple of Jesus. The command, follow me, will change this guy's life more than anything he could do with his money. So Jesus holds this lens up and he says, for you to dislodge the idol in your heart, you need to get rid of the money. You need to sell it. You need to give it away so that you can follow me. And the implication for us is, what is the thing that's guarding the deeper idol? It might be money. I mean, this might be a very straightforward application for you. My love for my things or what that gets me does keep me from following Jesus. If that's the case, then the application for you is very similar to this. Get rid of it. It's poisoning your soul. Get rid of it. But don't pretend like the thing itself is going to solve the inner problems. Because for other people in here, it's not that. You actually don't have a problem there. You have a problem with the fear of man. You orchestrate your whole life so that people will think well of you when things are actually not well inside. Get rid of the fear of man would be Jesus' command and come and follow me. Get rid of pride in your life and come and follow me. Get rid of whatever the thing is, the idolatry of your children, and come and follow me. Dislodge whatever's guarding the door to your heart so that God can be the center of what you desire. Here's the final thing. Jesus holds up a mirror to this guy and shows him what eternal life really looks like. See, this is one of the sadder stories in the Bible because we don't get the ending that we're hoping for. You get a lot of stories in the Bible where bad people come to Jesus and they turn to him and serve him, and it all ends up happily ever after. Think the foil story for this one is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is so much worse than this guy. He, he is outwardly unrighteous at the highest level, but he has the exact same makeup of the heart. He has a love of money that is serving a deeper idol in his heart. He encounters Jesus Jesus affirms him. He basically believes that Jesus is his savior. He has the need. And what does he do? He turns his life around and he starts using his money for the kingdom of God. That's, that's the kind of story we love to read because it works out great in the end. This story is the exact opposite. At the end of this story, Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, which we'll come back to that word, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. This is like the word for mourning. He went away moved in his spirit, for he had great possessions. Now, Jesus is going to give a little commentary to the disciples after this, and this is really important. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, then who could be saved? Then who could be saved? See, this is so, Jesus is so brilliant in the way that he deals with the heart. The disciples are shocked by what happens. This guy is the leading candidate for a person that gets it, that understands it. Not only is he morally good, God clearly must love him because he has all these material possessions. He's been blessed by God, and he has a real encounter with Jesus, and he walks away sorrowful. Now, <laughs> this is one where our perspective and theirs is so different. Sometimes you would expect the disciples, because of the world we live in, to be excited about this. Jesus, he stuck it to the rich guy. Jesus turned away the rich guy. The, 
that's not the disciples. You're not going to find like an Occupy Jerusalem movement in the first century. That they revered this person. If he can't be saved, that's what the disciples say. If this guy can't be saved, nobody can be saved. They're looking at like, if there's no hope for him, then we have no hope. Who could possibly be saved if this guy can't be saved? Jesus utters one of the most amazing lines in all of Scripture. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. The impossibility that Jesus talks about is really striking. And he says, he gives this little metaphor, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. And this is so funny the way this is taught on, because the clear point of this metaphor is, it's impossible. Like, that's all he's saying. It's impossible. Like, camel, big. Eye of a needle, tiny. Not going to happen. That's, that's the whole point. And you see people doing all these gymnastics like, well, there was actually this gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle, and, and, and really the, the camel just had to bow to get through it, and so it's difficult, but not that difficult. No. And, and you get all these things of the words. No, the whole point of this is beware. It is impossible with man. So the question we should be asking is, given what he's already said with this guy, why would he say that? Why would he say it is impossible? This gets down into what Jesus has been teaching us all along. Riches and the, and the idols that they serve have a peculiar grasp on the human heart for this reason. Because they so closely provide what only God can provide. They so closely mirror what only God can do. See, see God in promising eternal life doesn't just promise some ethereal, you're going to be with him forever in heaven, although that's part of it. He promises that he will be your father and your provider and your friend, and he will walk by you and he will strengthen you every day of your life starting now, which is exactly what having riches can pretend to do for you. It, it, it suits all of the same needs that God says, you can only find this in me. See, that's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's nearly impossible when you're finding your security and your value in something like that to turn the human heart and say, no, I'm going I'm to find it in God, even if that means I'm going to suffer, even if that means it doesn't work out for me in terms of my image, even if it doesn't feel as good at the time. Jesus is saying, for people to make that exchange, God has to be involved. That can never happen in the human heart. It has to happen when God comes in and shows you what real eternal life is like. This passage is the end of a trajectory in the Gospel of Matthew about treasure. I looked this up this week. This is really an interesting thing to study. If you look up every instance of this word treasure in the Gospel of Matthew, which this is just a side note, the, gospel, the, the, the word treasure in Greek is the word thesaurus, where we get the word thesaurus for all the words. It's a treasury of words. And it basically means as much of something as you can think of. That's what the root of this word means. The first time you see this word in Matthew is in chapter 2 when the Magi come. And the Magi are the first disciples in the gospel. They're the first people who show what it really means to come to Christ, what it really means to have eternal life, because they bow down and they worship him and they open their treasures to him. 
This is a picture for us at the very beginning. These people who are far from God, they're pagans, they're not Jews, they're nowhere else mentioned in the story, but these people get it. To follow Jesus doesn't mean to go through some kind of religious hoop. It means to bow down and worship, displace the idol in your heart, begin to worship Jesus, and turn all of your treasures towards him. That's in chapter 2, verse 11. Then in chapter 6, Jesus begins to teach on treasure. He says, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy and thieves won't break in and steal because where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also, right? This is that same link between the surface and the root. Where your treasure is will reveal what's going on deep in your heart. In chapter 13, he gives us the greatest picture in the Bible of treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and somebody goes and they find it, and, and they know the value of this treasure so that they will sell everything else in their life so that they can buy the field and have the treasure. And the last time Jesus mentions treasure in the Gospel of Matthew is right here. Sell everything you have, he says to the young man, so that you can have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Your, the way you use your treasure, who you present your treasure to, will always reveal the condition of your heart. For this guy, eternal life consisted in having material pleasure that fed his ego, his drive, whatever it was. But Jesus says, you want to experience eternal life? You want to experience the life that you were created for? You need a heart that is surrendered to God, and all of your treasure is now his. That's the way you live for God. So the story ends up kind of being like that moment, if you've ever experienced where you're in a store and you're looking for something and you find something that you really like, but it doesn't have a price tag on it, and you're kind of figuring up in your head what the price is going to be on this thing, and you take it up to the cash register, and you get up there, and you're doing this kind of thing where you're like, you know, you put it on there, like, I kind of want to buy this, but I kind of want to know how much it is before I buy it. And the cashier scans it and says something that, like, totally jars you, and you're like, no, 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 okay. I don't want it that bad. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want it anymore. That's mildly awkward when you have a bunch of things. It's really awkward when that's the only thing you have. Because after that, you just got to walk out of the store. Never to return, probably. You just, you know what, actually, I'm done shopping here. I don't, I don't, I don't want anything anymore. That's what the rich young ruler does. He finds something that he wants, and when Jesus tells him what it's going to cost him, he decides he doesn't want it anymore. This is the picture of unbelief in the gospel. Somebody who doesn't see eternal life the right way. Jesus is holding up a mirror saying, hey, the life you have right now, you think it is satisfying. It is nothing compared to what I can give you. Jesus says, but it costs too much. The man says, the price tag is too high. You know, in that same passage, this is the part that nobody ever does quote out of 1 Timothy. They always quote the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But they don't quote this part. Paul goes on, and in that passage, he's saying, warn the rich in this present age. And he says later, a few verses later, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. And then listen to how he finishes this line. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they might take hold of that which is truly life. Take hold of that which is truly life. When your heart changes, 
You experience life that nothing else could ever buy for you, provide for you, give to you. Jesus says, basically, if you want eternal life, here it is. You're looking at it. Everything else in your life will change course, but you will have life abundant and everlasting. So for us, as we conclude, I just want you to spend a minute in front of that mirror that Jesus is holding up. Jesus has held up a mirror now to say, this is what your need looks like. This is what your riches look like. This is what eternal life looks like. Do you see it? Do you see it? What do you see in the mirror? What do you see on the throne of your heart? What do you see as eternal life, life abundant with Jesus? The thing for us to do this morning is to essentially learn from what the rich young man does. He looks and he says, I disagree, or I don't, I, I, I don't think it's worth the cost. The question for us every moment with Jesus is, is Jesus at the core? It's not about the riches. It's not about the surface idols. It's the very core of who you are. Is that devoted to Jesus alone? And he makes the most audacious promise in this passage. Then you will have treasure you could never imagine. Do you have that? Are you pursuing that? Is everything in your life flowing from that? Is God using everything he's given you because you have a deeper treasure in your heart, which is knowing and walking with Jesus Christ? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great treasure. Lord, it is worth everything to exchange in our life to get you. And Father, by your spirit this morning, we pray that you would do what Jesus says, that it would be impossible for us to just make that exchange on our own, but by your spirit, you can help us to see that you are our greatest good. Father, that you have given us all kinds of wonderful things. Your creation is amazing, but it is empty without you. So, Father, this morning, remind us, turn our hearts to worship you. Lord, hold up a mirror that we can see our desperate need for you. Father, give us a treasure of knowing Jesus that nothing on earth could provide for us, that we would taste that and see your goodness and your wonder, and we would never desire anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to take communion this morning, and as our service comes.